Sir, we've had a little problem. These two women are just arriving. They objected to giving up their weapons. Klingons do not surrender their weapons. Who are you? We are Lursa and Baton of the House of Duras. Hello and welcome to the Duras Sisters podcast. We are not Klingons, but we are sisters. Hello. Hello. I'm Ashlyn. And I'm Rihanna. We are so <laughs> excited today to talk about The Caretaker, which is the first episode of Star Trek Voyager. This is the pilot, and we're going to see who's taking care of who in this episode. <laughs> Seems sus. <laughs> that joke. So, as we've mentioned in previous episodes, Rihanna and I, when we first watched Star Trek, we saw every series in order. And so far, we've gone in the order that we've released the episodes. So we started with Original Series, Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, and Voyager. We're talking about pilots here on this episode, and so I think it's interesting to first bring up our perceptions of the show that we remember the mm-hmm. last time we did a rewatch, and then kind of like what the episode actually is today. Rihanna, what does Voyager mean to you? And what kind of expectations do you have going into this pilot? So Voyager as a whole, this is obviously coming from someone who's already seen the show. Essentially, Voyager is a representation of female empowerment and of human tenacity. Voyager was never solely about exploring and about seeking out new life. It was about getting home, coming together, and forging bonds between people. That's what Voyager means to me. How about you, Ashlyn? Interesting. So I love your rosy view of Voyager, and I think it's really cute and special. And (laughs) excuse um, me, cute. I mean, (laughs) I agree with you. But my memories of Voyager are Janeway being amazing Mm -hmm. and being one of my favorite characters, and then a bunch of kind of weird and lamely written aliens that are copied from the next generation. Okay, okay, absolutely. I will amend my statement saying that Voyager's aim was for that (laughs) to occur. Voyager did not always achieve those ideals, but that's what they were going for. So we've talked a lot about Rick Berman on this podcast, and he's so important at this time in Star Trek history because he's basically the Gene Roddenberry of Star Trek. Mm -hmm. He is the godparent, you might say. Um, (laughs) Roddenberry is no longer really in the picture. He's just getting those fat checks. And it's all about Rick Berman and the other executives like Jerry Taylor, Michael Piller. We also add uh, Brandon Baga and Kenneth Biller to Star Trek Voyager. And so DS9 was going really well. Despite the hate that it got in the first episode and the first season, DS9 was really thriving. And so now we're in 1993 and it's season five of Deep Space Nine and Voyager is having its pilot. Wow. Yeah. Uh, The reason they created the show was because they wanted to promote their new TV station that they were going to debut. This is Rick Berman's new TV network. It's called UPN. And so they decided to create a new Star Trek show, make some more money. They wanted to appease fans who missed having the plot be aboard a starship. Yeah. With Deep Space Nine just taking place at a station for the majority of the show, it is a totally different feel from Next Generation and Original Series. And so they wanted to draw on themes that were created from Next Generation and Deep Space Nine and just further them, much like they did with creating Deep Space Nine. Voyager is much more of a direct sequel to the next generation but it has plot lines taken from deep space nine 
This pilot actually cost $23 million. It was so far the most expensive pilot that Star Trek had produced. Wow, um, that's insane. And it was shot totally on Next Generation sets just to save money, <laughs> which is crazy. Yeah, was, I couldn't the, recognize even in this pilot. Yeah, that it's that it, it looked like used. a next gen set. <laughs> yeah, they they didn't want to create their own sets for Voyager until they knew that it was going to take off and be a mm. successful show. And so the first episode they did shoot on the old sets. I read Kate Mulgrew's book a couple years ago when it came out, which is a fantastic book. It Born remains, with Teeth. Born with Teeth. Yes, it remains one of my favorite autobiographies mm-hmm. I think I've ever read. And I love reading Star Trek autobiographies, but hers is amazing. Incredible. She talks about her life and everything that led up to her being casted on Star Trek. And I remember that she did not watch Star Trek. She was not a fan of the show at all. Mm -mm. But her manager told her, I'm getting contacted by the Star Trek people. This is a huge thing and you have to say yes. She honestly did not really care too much about it. She didn't think it was an important show. She thought it was kind of a Star Wars thing. And so when she took a look at the first script, she was shocked that it was a script of quality. And it was (laughs) about promoting and creating good change and all these themes that, of course, we know and love about Star Trek. Mm -hmm. She just feels like the character of Janeway is the strong, amazing woman who just spouts technobabble. Kate Mulgrew does not care at all about the science of Star Trek or anything like that, (laughs) but she just memorized those lines and spit out the technobabble. And so I love seeing this first episode with her, kind of knowing what her thoughts were, that she's just (laughs) thinking, well, I hope I can hack it. Because another reason why these Star Trek shows were so appealing at this time was because there was such a big audience for it. Mm -hmm. And these shows had a history because of the success of Next Generation for running seven years. And so as an actor Mm. who's trying to get a job, having a consistent gig for seven years is a huge deal. Absolutely. And so Star Trek had set a precedent for creating successful shows that audiences would die for. Voyager doesn't have the same kind of issues that I had about Deep Space Nine. I had some reservations about recommending it to friends who had never seen other Star Trek shows. I feel like Voyager is a little bit of an outcast because Mm. if you've never seen any Star Trek in your life, you might be confused about maybe what the Maquis is Mm -hmm. and that type of thing. You can kind of jump in in this pilot and just enjoy the ride. Yeah, it's very clear that this show wanted to distinguish itself in a completely different area of Star Trek. That's why I think the premise of them being thrust into the Delta Quadrant was very smart because it allows for new species to be discovered. You can kind of diverge away from Starfleet. And along with that, like you said, get the fans, get new fans into the fold. I have people I know who started with Voyager and then went back and watched the other shows because they loved Voyager so much, which is completely understandable because it feels like this clean slate of Star Trek. Yes. I was actually thinking for this podcast, let's start by talking about Quark. (laughs) (laughs) Yet again, here we are. (laughs) I I think he's a good gateway, just like he was for Deep Space Nine. But before we talk about him, Ashlyn, I need you to explain the episode the caretaker as poorly as possible the moral of the story is never forget your clarinet (laughs) yeah poor harry he's gonna be clarinetless for seven whole years (laughs) so rihanna you go okay (laughs) star trek voyager the voyage home (laughs) oh but rihanna where are the whales yeah where are the whales (laughs) They're right at home. That's why they're going home. 
Well, on the theme of whales, at least we get some jellyfish again in this episode. <laughs> There's a jellyfish at the end. You can fight me. <laughs> I don't think it's a jellyfish. Uh, it's pretty jelly and pink to me. Wait, you mean the caretaker? Yeah. yeah no, his, he's his... he's a, like a, a pancake that Spock got attacked by. But he's pink and jellyish. And he, but he's like Odo. He like shriveled into <laughs> rock. <laughs> it was weird. <laughs> Well, I okay, think, let's talk about Quark. I think let's talk about Quark. <laughs> yeah, I think he's a good place to begin. Because yeah. they, out of all the characters in Deep Space Nine, we now have kind of a tradition of bringing a character from the last show into the new one to kind of hold your hand and say, yeah. let's go, here's the new series. This is our fourth podcast, and this is now the fourth pilot, technically fifth pilot, that Star Trek has had. So yeah. we're used to this formula. And so instead of McCoy or Picard... <laughs> We have Quark. <laughs> Instead of Cisco or Kira or Worf, anyone we really anyone. love. <laughs> well, and I do love Quark. Yeah. By the end of G Space Nine, he was kind sure. of a beloved character to me, but he's not like a serious person. No. But I think that this transition worked well for the scenery like i don't know why harry kim would be up in cisco's office or in ops with kira like it works out perfectly that harry kim's just sitting at the bar being swindled by quark (laughs) yeah i agree i love it i think it is a perfect setting yes because it's not about quark it's about tom paris forging a friendship with harry kim that friendship that is pretty epic in my opinion it's one of the better friendships in all of star trek and it's really cute to see it begin so do you think that quark is kind of using i wouldn't say white guilt but i would maybe say now human guilt Mm -hmm. to to trick him out of his money correct (laughs) absolutely i think think that's hilarious it was very funny and so quark Quark move yeah yeah And it was the least heavy transition, I think. Like, they weren't trying to impart any knowledge or make it this nostalgic event. It was just like, haha, there's Quark. See ya, Deep Space Nine. Well, and we have to remember that this is season five of Deep Space Nine. Yeah, true. And so I'm sure that they took a day and called Armin Shimmerman <laughs> to the set and just said, hey, you have the day off of DS9. Come film this pilot for five minutes. We'll pay you 60 bucks or yeah, something. Yeah, sounds right. <laughs> I don't really mind Quark's bar as the scenery. I think it's perfect. And like you said, it's not heavy handed at all. They're just using it as a location to start this episode. Yeah. I think it's great. But do you remember the first time we watched it and we were screaming in agony because I missed Deep Space Nine so much? (laughs) You bring up a great point because by the time you finish Deep Space Nine, that bar is a treasure to you. It is a great send off for Deep Space Nine as well as... A perfect introduction for Voyager. Jumping off of that, I'm gonna dive right into Tom Paris. All right, let's hear it. It's a weird opening for Tom Paris, and I don't like it. And it's very confusing to me seeing him in this penal colony in New Zealand. I don't know how you felt about this opening. Okay, so my question is. Were they trying to say something about how Australia used to be a place where they sent the prisoners? I'm wondering, is New Zealand now where they send prisoners in the the 24th century? Or is this just a place where they're like, we need Tom out of the way. We're going to send him to the the other end end. of the earth. Yeah, I don't know. But it's a little unsettling having our captain come in and say, 
we need this guy because he knows the Maquis and he seems like kind of a jerk, kind of annoying, standoffish. Every quality I don't like in Tom Paris is highlighted in this episode. I 100% agree. I remember the Next Generation episode, The First Duty, where Wesley gets in trouble because he pulled off an illegal maneuver and it ended up getting someone in his squad killed. They're all pilots and the actor for Tom Paris, Robert who is, Duncan McNeil. Yes, he's in that episode. Yep. And so the literal story that Tom tells later about why no one likes him is that he was involved in a pilot accident where it was his pilot error and three crewmates ended up dying. Yeah. And this story is so similar to the first duty that I could not even remember if he was supposed to be the same character or not. So yeah, I recently rewatched the first duty and he has a completely different name. It's very yeah. frustrating to me. The creators of Voyager could have gone back, watched the first duty if they were hiring him and be like, okay, what was this character's name? Great. We'll use that story to have a little Easter egg. Yes. I also am confused because we know Admiral Paris from The Next Generation. Yeah. And so the fact that we know his dad already and we know this actor already, mm -hmm. why? Why? Why can't why? they be the same? Yeah. Why? Yeah. I just want him to perfectly insert into that timeline because he would even fit with the age that he is. Yes. I just, I don't understand. I that. know. They had such a good opportunity and they missed it. Yes. So that was upsetting. Yeah. As well as the rest of Tom's introduction. I don't really like to talk about and judge people's appearances too much, but uh -huh. I thought his crazy hair made him look a little evil. <laughs> and he was being so nasty to everyone and he's so yep. hostile. But I think it's all just a setup because we end up learning that he is not trying to make friends. He is so angry at the world and angry at himself and angry at his father the only thing he's wanting to do is push people away and yeah. he's doing that he's pushing he's doing me it away great. yeah <laughs> yes exactly and while i think that it's smart that the writers of the show sort of built up in the episode to dive into people's backgrounds and they did everything i learned about him made me like him less instead of liking him more which you know character depth is good either way it goes in my opinion as a writer but at the same time, I have never gone into a show actively disliking a character as much as I disliked Tom Paris. Yeah, I think in this case, all press is good press is not yeah. necessarily true. <laughs> exactly. I think the only redeemable thing about Tom that we see at least in the first half of this episode is his relationship with Harry Kim. Yeah, exactly. For eternally forever ensign Harry Kim. <laughs> I think I have a theory about why he never became anything more than an ensign is because of his first interaction with Janeway went off so poorly and he immediately calls her ma'am and she goes, oh. it's not quite a crunch yet, Kim. <laughs> and she never forgave him. <laughs> so, so let's talk about the first time we see Captain Janeway. Mm -hmm. She's greeting Tom at this penal colony. Right. Her hair's up. She's looking very professional. Mm -hmm. I get so many Next Generation vibes mm -hmm. from so many aspects of yes. this Voyager episode. And the first one is Janeway. She is professional. She is serious. She's not really personal at all. She's just all about facts and she's just trying to do her first duty. <laughs> She also has a family, or at least a partner of some kind. I think and a, a boyfriend. dog. 
Oh, yeah. And a dog who's having puppies. So that is where she differs from Picard, which I love because I expected her to also be not attached, not invested in families or relationships. But she has a tender side. She has a sweet side. And we get just a little tiny glimpse of that in this episode. And of course, we'll get to know her a lot more as the series goes on. I think that those five minutes we see of her alone in her ready room talking to her boyfriend it is maybe my favorite part of the whole episode right because we show the tremendous acting ability of kate Mm. mulgrew she is flirting Mm -hmm. with this guy she's tender with him she just oh she's adorable i love her i'm in love with her and i've only seen her speak like three lines total yes and then as soon as she leaves the red room and she's back on the bridge, it's like that side of her never exists. Exactly. She's back to being professional. And just to see her little quip with Harry, she doesn't want to be called sir. She only wants to be called ma'am in a crunch. Um, and then, <laughs> yes, exactly. When she says to Harry, it's not crunch time yet. <laughs> Honestly, Ashley and I often tell each other that we only want to be called ma'am in a crunch. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, don't call def- us ma'am. <laughs> it's definitely a running joke. Um, So I think that little scene shows that she is funny and she can quip and she's not quite as uptight as Picard. That first episode with Picard, he is so cold Mm -hmm. and immovable to every character and she's not. She can be very warm and very welcoming. And let's be honest, she's trying to find her security chief, Tuvok. Her bestie, we're gonna later yeah, find BFFs out. for life. Yeah. Yeah. Also, during that ma'am scene, it's a great quip, but it's also a show that I'm not gonna adhere to patriarchal norms of everyone calling me sir, even though I'm a woman. I'm going to forge my own title. I appreciate that she chooses a genderless term instead of going the gendered route because it involves so much other patriarchal nonsense that she just doesn't have time for. She's like, I need to run a ship. I don't need you to be calling me sir or ma'am. I think back to other episodes that I've kind of been confused by when I hear female characters who are officers called sir Mm -hmm. and they're fine with it. Yeah. Um, And so I think that is the norm in Starfleet. Also, Janeway is very cool under fire, being thrown into this other quadrant, having her first officer die, having her helmsman die. She shows extraordinary composure during that moment of crisis. (laughs) She doesn't, she barely even bats an eye at the fact that her first officer just died. And I think that's because she's learned to compartmentalize as a good Starfleet captain must learn to face fear, but place that fear aside is essential. That scene where she looks at her first officer, she's mm-hmm. checking to see how's he doing, is he alive, she's moving his head around yeah. to check his pulse, see if he's breathing. She's trying to keep it all together and she flips into crisis mode and yep. she is running around the bridge saying, that person's dead, is that person alive, is that person alive? Then she's calling down to her, to the rest of the staff saying, yeah. all right, who made it? Who's yeah. alive? Also, Let's get some information. Exactly. And at the same time, she is not staying on the bridge. She gets down to engineering and starts getting in the weeds with them, which has, have we seen Picard do that? Have we seen Kirk do that? Have we seen Cisco do that? No, she has such engineering prowess. She gets her butt down there. Kate Mulgrew gets to do some lovely techno babble. She's just incredible. I mean, this is what made me fall in love with her even more every second. As soon as it happens and they're thrown 70,000 light years away from 
their home. Her hair is down and she's a mess on the bridge. Mm-hmm. And then as she's running down, by the time she gets to engineering, her hair is back up in a bun. Yes, and you see her tucking it back in. It's cool as you please. For anyone with long hair, you know that that is that is hard, especially to get it looked to Jane way to get the Jane way so bun is a difficult feat in and of itself. So yeah, that's not just a normal bun where she's taken ten seconds to just wrap no. it up. Like no, she really fixed it up, and so that's impressive. So she's showing that she's great at hair and she's great at being a captain. Great at multitasking. <laughs> great at getting down there and doing what needs to be done well and i think it shows that she's only going to get respect if she looks like she's Mm. in like everything's in place and she's ready to go so so she's trying to show that she is in control yep absolutely so i kind of want to talk about the maquis and starfleet dynamic so we can enter in chakotay and balana into this conversation Yes. yes let's go well this is how the whole episode starts yeah is chakotay tuvok Balana, all in the Maquis ship. Yes, heading towards the Badlands, which we learn about in Deep Space Nine a bit during the Maquis episodes, but we don't really need to know much about it except that it's this spatial anomaly. It's just an an expanse where weird things happen. It's easy to hide your ship in there because it's hard for ships to detect you because of the weird technobabble. But either way, it's a nice convenient hiding spot for the Maquis. And so, again... We're having another series, just like Deep Space Nine, starting in the middle of the action, which I appreciate because after this bizarre Star Wars opening, yes, I was so confused by that. The thing is, before Star Wars came out, the scroll was used, Mm -hmm. and that's fine. You can use a scroll to tell people the information, but after Star Wars makes it historic, there's no going back. No, Now everything that you do that has a scroll in the beginning... (laughs) Everyone in the whole world's going to think Star Wars. Yeah. So what a weird choice. It was a that's, very weird choice. That's weird. That's And that's not just the first Star Wars element that I see. No. There's several as the episode goes on. There's quite a few. Yeah. But it does help us get right into the action which is it does. great. So I'm kind it's, of I'm kind of here for it. I'm just a little mad. They could have just popped it on the screen and not scrolled it. <laughs> Same difference. And, and to be clear, Rhiannon and I don't hate Star Wars. Oh, like, no. On the I contrary. I love Star Wars. We both love it. Yes. Yeah. I just don't love the fact that people are always trying to compare Star Wars and Star Trek and make it this either or. This fuels the fire. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. And I also think it's funny and maybe a little bit of middle finger to Roddenberry because he was so anti-Star Wars. Right. I'm just wondering why they made this choice. Agreed. Just, I don't like it. Yeah. So we find out that Tuvok is in fact undercover in this Maquis ship, which means Vulcans can lie. Debunked. Mm. Boom. Right there. Mm. <laughs> I mean, we've always hey. kind of known this, but... Is he lying or is he implying, as right. Fox says? Right. Sure, sure. <laughs> I think that that's a myth. <laughs> that Vulcans can lie. They just don't prefer to lie because often it's not logical. But it was logical to lie in this situation for Tuvok because he was undercover investigating the Maquis. Which Sometimes. is so cool, by the way. I love Tuvok. He's one of my very favorite Voyager characters, so It's what Chakotay says a little later once they're all on Voyager. At Tuvok's doing his duty. He's following his orders. They're fighting the Cardassians also, which, you know, we just learned about in Deep Space Nine. If you've seen the whole show, you know they're a species that both the Maquis and the Federation are trying to go up against. So the Maquis, because I think it's important to understand who exactly they are, they are Federation colonists 
who had their rights being taken away by the Cardassians. So they're colonists that the Federation has sent out to live not on Earth, but all over the galaxy. Mm-hmm. And the Federation is their government, basically. But the Cardassians, as a result of the war with Bajor, and then as a result of, like, the Jem'Hadar and everything mm-hmm. going on, the Cardassians now want more territory. Yeah. And this was touched upon in DS9. So as a result, a lot of these colonists are former Starfleet officers that are turning. Right. Because they're going against what the Federation wants. The Federation wants peace. (laughs) They want to figure out the deal with the Cardassians in a diplomatic way, kind of Picard style. But these colonists, the Maquis, they want to fight because they're being affected by it. And so they don't want to stand by. They want to do something. And this is reminding me a lot of Kira. This is the same way that we see her in the beginning of DS9. She has been fighting for a long time against the Cardassians. And that's Mm -hmm. exactly what these three and everyone on the ship is doing. Yes. And to add on to that, Chakotay is the captain of this ship, the one of the Maquis ships, which I think is the perfect choice to make him Native American in this story because it's such an allegory for Native American land being taken by white colonists. And the Cardassians are doing the same things that was done to the Native Americans way back in, not long ago for us, but long ago for Star Trek. That kind of stuff is still happening today. Mm -hmm, Exactly. An important thing to remember uh, that I always love about Star Trek is it's trying to closely mirror problems in our life uh, using a sci-fi lens to do so and so that of course was a deliberate choice to make Chakotay Native American allowing for that type of representation was really interesting and awesome to me what was not interesting nor awesome was the two times that Paris is calling him Indian and being not very sensitive about it. I was so confused by this because Star Trek is woke. I was thinking about this because we have kind of had the past 20 years a PC, a a politically correctification of society. And so it is no longer okay really to refer to Native Americans as Indians because that's what Columbus called them and that's what all the colonists called them. I I was just surprised by this and I was wondering because this is 1993, were we just still calling them Indians? I don't know. In 1993? Really? That seems wrong (laughs) to me. Yeah, and so I'm not sure. I can't tell if it's just the 90s or if it's the character of Tom Paris choosing to be offensive. Which is probable. (laughs) But Chakotay, he doesn't react to it at all. He just lets it breeze on by. But also his leg's broken. He's about to die. I feel like he has bigger problems than someone using the wrong term. Well, it's true. (laughs) It's true. Well, and I also... I don't think we can even say Native American. I don't remember about uh, what a tribe, maybe they say it in, I know Chakotay says wrong tribe to him yeah. at some point, but Native people can be from anywhere. Totally. So it's not he's indigenous to whichever, he's an probably indigenous not, person. he's probably not actually Native to America, but. <laughs> no, I'm sure he's not. Yeah. But we have such an American-centric uh, oh, true that. point of view. Um we're a little biased by that but indigenous anyway he's he's a native person and so i think it's cool that voyager is showing that native people are serving in starfleet even if they are rebelling and yeah joining the maquis it's still cool and i love having the character of chakotay on here and i think he's a good balance for the rest of the cast absolutely as strong-willed as Riker. what do you think (laughs) of chakotay rihanna i 
think that he holds a strong presence for those in the Maquis, and everyone respects him. I think that even Tuvok probably grew to respect him under his, you know, spy duties, because he (laughs) is able to command a ship with a calmness and a sense of authority that is not so much like Janeway, because I think he's less fiery and a little more calm. I mean, well, he's also mocky and he's also angry about a lot of things. We don't see much of that, though, in this episode. Like, I'm more going off future knowledge of Chakotay's character. But even just knowing the background without even seeing this character yet, just like looking at his personality on paper, you can assume that he's got some anger there. Yeah, of course. I mean, everyone who is in the Maquis is in there because... They felt like they they've strongly, been wrong. Strongly believe that have. what the Federation is doing is wrong. Yeah. And like, I have a hard time disagreeing with them on a lot of those points, if yes. I'm honest. <laughs> yes. Then we see his first officer, Belana Torres, is almost the exact opposite of Chakotay in their temperaments, which is kind of perfect because they balance each other out well, and he's able to calm her down, and she's able to, like, hype him up and get him fired up to do what needs to be done. So their dynamic is super interesting to me, as well, of course, as Star Trek always needs someone who is half of one species and half of another ever since Spock. Did they do this to seem relatable? Like, do they have some of these species be half human so we can relate to them? I love Worf, and I think him as a Klingon, he's one of the strongest characters in Star Trek. Do you think it's because she's a female they're making her half human? What's her place on this show? I think that the reason they made her a half Klingon is because it worked so well for Spock. It's because they wanted to yet again insert this inner turmoil that someone faces Uh, and so i feel like it's a repeat of the success they got with spock that they're trying to capture again with other characters and to feed into that dynamic there's so many people who are mixed race and so i think it's an important voice to have on a show even if it's a Klingon and a human you know like it doesn't matter species races the point is is that it to me demonstrates the turmoil that they have to overcome or learn to live with wow that just shows my whiteness I had never thought about that what an interesting way to jam a plot line mm-hmm. into this character right away yes yeah. yeah setting up she's going to struggle with being cling on and being human and because of all the misconceptions with being feminine she's going to struggle with that too yeah and being maquis as well oh geez poor Belana. <laughs> she has a, a lot, lot to go through she's in this series a lot of stereotypes mm-hmm. yeah that's why when balana and harry kim get captured and are together on the planet getting treated for this disease i really enjoyed that scene because we got to see a dynamic that i didn't expect from the first episode or remember it allows right away to have starfleet talk to the in an environment that's neutral to both of them and in a threat that they're both dealing with and so they have to come together which is a perfect way to unite Starfleet and Maquis is through crisis and through times of turmoil and Harry Kim is just the sweetest little dude he is going to be helpful to pretty much anyone he meets and I don't think he gets enough credit for that because nice people never get enough credit for being nice and I don't think that a lot of people would give Bellana the space that Harry Kim gave her So I want to talk about this overall plot that you brought up uh, 
that the Maquis and the Federation are going to have to come together in order to fight the caretaker or in order to discover the mystery and unravel the reason why they've been brought into the future. Yeah. So I'm wondering, as a plot device or as a plot structure, do you think they did a good job setting up this story because this is a very important story because it's the reason why Voyager was brought all the way across the galaxy. And mm-hmm. so to I'm wondering for you, is this a good enough explanation and do you like how it's executed? Because just this is such a big contrast to the setup of Deep Space Nine where we followed one character, we learned his whole story and his whole life, mm-hmm. and then the plot was around him. Yeah, this story, by contrast, is about like 50 people yeah. <laughs> who were brought across the universe together. So we're focusing on all of them. And it is so important for this show to go forward that we like these people mm-hmm. and that we are intrigued by the struggle they're going through enough to watch the next episode. So what do you think about the setup of this show and the plot and the execution of it? Thank you for asking that. That was a really great question. I have mixed feelings about it. Definitely watching it again after having seen all of Voyager made me appreciate it a hundred times more than the first time I saw it. I was, granted, a lot younger, but also just not very interested in the plot because I'm such a character-driven person that I'm watching shows for the characters. Like, yes, I love good plots and I love when there's like a well-directed episode and you're like, whoa, that was a cool concept or whatever. But most of the time my eyes are on the characters and what they're feeling, how they're reacting, what they're doing in these certain situations that help them grow or that take them down view pegs or whatever. That's the one thing where I think this episode lacks is it felt way more plot driven, which I also give it credit for because it has to. (laughs) I think that even in a two-parter, you still have to put in so much of the plot to understand a massive undertaking they're about to do with this show because Voyager is a completely different concept than the rest of them. But also so was Deep Space Nine and they were still able to develop the characters during the episode and to give you a taste. And I feel like I know very little about Tuvok coming out of this episode. I know very little about Harry Kim. I know very little about Chakotay, about Kess, about Neelix. So that was a bit frustrating to me, but it also gives me enough of all of them that I am excited to learn more. So I think that that was probably the strategy they're going for more. They're not going for a Deep Space Nine, Time Crystal, let's give you a quick background. (laughs) No, this time they're going for a taste of every character to make you hungry for more. And I think overall it worked because I definitely wanted to watch the next episode after seeing this one. It's been quite a while since I've seen Voyager and I don't think I ever gave it the credit that it deserves back when I was younger. I don't think I was appreciative of what it was doing because I missed Deep Space Nine and because the characters didn't feel as strong to me right away that I had a harder time connecting to them quickly. Besides Janeway, she's really the only person that I connected with in this episode. Well, and I connected with a growing dynamic between Tuvok and Janeway and Harry and Paris. You know, even Neelix and Kess, like I can see a dynamic starting to grow and sort of the animosity between 
Tuvok and Neelix and Chakotay and Paris, you know? So you do see groups having strong interactions, but as individuals, I felt a little bit shortchanged. But the plot itself, it seemed a little bit bizarre that a caretaker would grab people from ends of the galaxy to try to mate with them instead of finding technology that could assist in doing the caretaking when he was gone. I just find it odd that he can reach into all these ends of the galaxies and can't find Borg technology that he could like just screw into his little ship and then have it send pulsations down to the planet. That seems like a much smarter solution to me, but of course they needed a way to get Voyager all the way across to the Delta Quadrant. So that's what they chose. It doesn't seem super plausible to me. But what about you? I love everything that you said. My response is all to add on to it, but I I want to dive deeper into this plot specifics that you brought up. So another reason I say that this episode reminds me of Lot of the Next Generation is the caretaker and Q to me are similar beings Mm. because they're both higher level type of alien that we as humans and as the Federation, they don't understand and can't control. Mm -hmm. So the caretaker has the ability to pull people from great long distances, much as Q does. And Q's able to create all these illusions, just like the caretaker does with the barn and the planet and the villagers. And so initially I'm getting Q, but I think it's executed poorly and it's much more confusing. I honestly felt like I was watching a bad episode of the original series while I'm watching the Starfleet officers beam down to this barn. They're all in this field. They have their tricorders out. They're walking around. It just felt like original series to me. And yes. I don't know whether they made to have an ode, but to me it was kind of a bad ode because I don't, I don't like this lady with the pitchfork. I'm not at ease. <laughs> I am very, <laughs> I am uneasy about how this plot is going and about how convincing it is but i also want to talk more about the caretaker because all we know about him is the okampa's point of view of him and Mm -hmm. i want to remind everybody that the okampa has a lifespan of nine years nine years that is not long that is a short life that's shorter than my cat like that's (laughs) (laughs) That's like as long as a hamster lives. I don't actually know how long a hamster lives, but it seems... Wait, let me look Seems real. Hamster lifespan. Oh, three years. That's way worse. So (laughs) that's like three hamsters' lives. Three hamsters' (laughs) lives. I think we have to remember that that is the perspective it's coming from. Because to them, to the... The elders in the Okampa species, they're nine years old. And so sure, Mm. they have emotionally matured much quicker than we do as humans, but the caretaker is probably just 80. Because if you think about it, like, oh, everything, all the knowledge we have is from generations ago. That could have only been like 80 years ago. But to them, that's like eight generations ago. Totally. I didn't even think about this. Do you you see what I mean? I am like actively weeping over here. I never thought of this. (laughs) This is what I'm saying. I'm thrown deeper into confusion about the caretaker because if they're trying to say that he's this being that can do all these things and we get a little more of this as the information is revealed about him when Janeway's talking to him at the end, my sense is that This is maybe a guy who is a part of a higher organization, 
I mean, he says that he used his technology to wipe the planet clean on accident. So this is also reminding me kind of of the Genesis device back in Search for Spock and Wrath of Khan. Absolutely. And where they're trying to tamper with something on the planet and it destroys it. And so this poor guy (laughs) is now honor bound. He's the fall guy. He's taking care of the rest of the hamsters that are on the planet. I just don't know what to think about this because it feels kind of like a lame plot. It it sets up this premise that this quadrant of the galaxy is not in good shape and there's not overall a good life for the people on these planets. In doing a little bit of research, the Kazon were based on the Los Angeles gangs Hmm. that are referenced as the Crips and the Bloods. Whoa. So Go the off. Kazon are warrior sex. That's interesting. interesting that they're inspired by gangs. I mean, y- you definitely get that mentality mm-hmm. uh, from them, but all they want is water. Yeah. And so I'm thinking, this is so sad. The Federation is good because it does help and it gives resources and supplies and food and water and materials to every planet that is in the Federation. Mm -hmm. And so maybe they're trying to say that this Delta Quadrant is undeveloped, but in a way I don't Mm -hmm. like. I think they're trying to say, oh, this Quadrant is so uh, underdeveloped, they don't even have water. They don't even have the basic necessities. Oh, it's not the Quadrant. It's just this planet. It's just because. But, a, but what about Neelix? What about when we meet Neelix and he's so excited to have water? <laughs> yeah, he's like, he's like, I can't believe I came across a species who wastes water like this. And I was like, oof, that's too real. <laughs> and so these are yeah. all carbon-based life true. forms who need water and they none of them have any You know, water. that's so true. And I think that how Janeway is set apart from probably what other Starfleet captains would choose in this instance yeah. is because she first of all makes the choice between what is right and what is easy and chooses what is right but she also tells the caretaker that you need to let these children grow and evolve i think that that's the best way she could have done it because then she's not coming in with her white savior complex being like you have to struggle but it's gonna make you stronger and it's gonna make you a better species and that's the kind of starfleet values that i think are important is not coming in and throwing money at the problem throwing toilet paper into the audience that's not gonna help anybody no what's gonna help people is by giving i mean of course like yeah sometimes money's great for the problem but it's not going to be a long-term solution it's, and it doesn't work without very careful thought exactly and, and planning uh, and yes. divvying out so yes. what's great is that the caretaker did give them five years of supplies and so in those five years they can build a civilization that either learns how to recycle water or learns how to trade or do something, you know, but they have to learn that on their own. They can't be coddled for the rest of their lives because they're never going to grow that way. This is making me think about climate change. Mm. And I don't know if they were necessarily thinking about it um, in 93, but it reminds me of it because the planet is totally barren and there's no way to survive up there and they're all living underground. It's like a lot of dystopian novels I read as a kid, City of Ember. The people are forced to move underground to survive. And it is terrible to think about that our children could be living in bunkers in 100 years underground because we Mm -hmm. can't think about climate change. Right. But that's what I'm thinking about. And the fact that Janeway is giving this culture tools to survive rather than the caretaker's method Mm -hmm. of just being their god i really respect her and it shows that she is different from the federation even though they're cut from the same cloth exactly i totally agree 
Oh, do you want to talk about Kess now, since we're on Ocampas? Let's yes. discuss Kess's role in this. Yes. And Neelix. Yes. Okay, so I have a bias against Kess that she's the worst character yeah. of all time. Mm-hmm. Because I remember her from the series. As Rihanna mentioned, I was younger when I saw it. And she's not really in the last seasons. All my favorite episodes are really season five and beyond. Yeah. When I see this episode... I am so impressed with Kess. I love her. I love that she's telling her village elder that he is not thinking straight and that she is saying that as young people, we have to rise up and take control of ourselves and we can't be relying on this god anymore because he's acting weird and he's going to die and they have to do something about it themselves. And I love her energy and I love that she is willing to go to the surface and mm-hmm. to escape this culture. That's yeah. amazing. It's incredible because she most likely knows what's at the surface and chooses freedom over luxury. And she chooses to forge her own path over being told what to do by the caretaker and by her elders. And it shows that just adhering to tradition for your entire life doesn't actually get you that far you know and traditions can be good but they can also cripple a culture into inaction yes absolutely well and i'm also thinking again because their lifespan is so short i think that the okampa have the ability to quickly develop and become a powerful society we have a you know hopefully 100-year lifespan. Of Mm -hmm. course, in the 24th century, they have like 120, (laughs) 150-year lifespan, whatever it is. It just gives me hope that the Ocampa will have a successful society and that they will be able to develop on the surface and their society will thrive because they already have young people who are forcing them to adapt. Absolutely. And there's not very many of them. And so it's a lot easier to have everybody kind of on the same page when there's not too many of your species left. You're fighting for survival. And at this point, the choice is either die as a species or adapt. And so Janeway is here at the right time for them to kind of turn this corner and to become their own people. Absolutely. Wow. Well said. That was beautiful. Wow. Yeah. And how did I space this that Neelix loves Kess from this first one? For some reason, my brain told me that they fall in love when they're on Voyager together. (laughs) That's completely wrong. And it strengthens my liking for Neelix because he's my least favorite character on Voyager. I can't help it. He's very annoying to me, but he's also very helpful and kind and pretty brave in this episode considering neelix's track record for future episodes i was like dang he will do a lot for Kess, and that's pretty amazing to watch absolutely i think this is star wars strike two though with the introduction <laughs> of neelix because i'm tell me watching more. this pilot and i see okay who's this seedy character who's going through the trash on this ship and trying to find any scraps that he can. So he takes scraps from people when it's Mm -hmm. not really necessarily allowed. He's not an ideal Star Trek character. This is the biggest Star Wars thing for me is they're going to use Neelix as like a map or a guide to get through the Delta (laughs) Quadrant. And this is exactly how every Star Wars character joins the main crew (laughs) but it's also a hero's journey archetype that specific guide 
is so common. So yes, it's definitely Star Wars, but it's also just like a literature archetype of like we need a guide who knows this region like lord of the rings has this harry potter he's just a convenient way for them to learn about the delta quadrant and i feel like he hardly ever goes beyond that and that's frustrating to me i think they're also trying to say something that he's a quote-unquote lower life form than Mm. the federation and i don't think i like it but i like how nice janeway is to him it's not like he's (laughs) gonna destroy the ship that his introduction is terrible and i just don't like him i don't know if it's ethan phillips because i actually found myself at the end liking ethan phillips the actor i kind of like what he does with neelix and so i i think this is only bad writing that's the obvious reason for having Neelix and Kess on the ship is to yeah. diversify the cast even further than they're already doing. Yeah. But I'm wondering, did Janeway break the prime directive with Neelix? We kind of talked about in the last episode. Uh, oh my god. <laughs> Wait, no. Profits. No, because he was in his ship. So presumably it has warp. But he didn't know. He well, doesn't know about very basic things. I feel like the prime directive goes right out the window when you're in the Delta Quadrant. obviously they're trying to follow it they they do talk about it they do yeah they have the discussion about the prime directive but that's because it's tuvok (laughs) just saying he's like always gonna be talking about well the prime directive and i love janeway and she talks about it too at the end of the episode i don't know it's a good question i was wondering especially with the kazon as well when they like transport the water down and they're like you can make it out of thin air um excuse me I assume everybody has impulse power, but do they have warp? I don't know. Yeah, and maybe it's just because of the area they're in. I don't know. I mean, it's definitely the grayest area and something that Starfleet never anticipated, so probably never wrote in any rule books. (laughs) I also think maybe Neelix is trying to be like a Harry Mudd type of character, Mm. which I can get my head around a little more. Yeah. (laughs) I still don't like Harry Mudd. No. Maybe, hot take, I think I like Harry Mudd better than Neelix. (laughs) Um, Totally get that. It's it's the sort of scavenger they're bringing into the fold, almost. But I do love Neelix's childlike enthusiasm to everything. It does bring on a lightness to the show. You can tell he's an opportunist because at the end of the episode, he probably, this is not shown on screen, but I'm sure he's talking to Kess and he's like, yo, we're homeless. Do yeah. you want to just live on this ship and have free water forever? And <laughs> exactly. Just, like, go free home? food as much yeah. as you want. And like, they seem like nice enough people. They can protect us. You know, I think they're kind of like, let's go under their wing. I was thinking that for myself. If I had no family or no life, would I just like hang out with this crew forever? <laughs> if Janeway was on it, yes. 100%. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I would not even hesitate. <laughs> absolutely. So I, I kind of want to move a little bit to the character dynamics you touched on a while ago. Because once we're deeper into the episode and I see Janeway and Tuvok interacting, mm-hmm. I really get a Kirk and Spock vibe from Yes. Them. Not like a ladies' man type of thing with Janeway, but I think that their relationship is very similar because Janeway is very opinionated and she's headstrong and she knows what she wants to do, but she's also open to criticism. I guess maybe I'm just getting the sense that they have like a deep trust with each other. Yeah. And it's the strongest relationship I see in this episode. Talk about that. Yeah. It's already established, which is great because of these two actors, Tim Ross and Kate Mulgrew, are able to easily fit into a dynamic that 
they probably just met <laughs> those actors, but on screen, they look like they've been friends for years, just like William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy pulled off in their pilot. I think yes. that makes the difference. Also because Tuvok seems like a trusted advisor almost to Janeway, and Janeway is comfortable enough confiding in him, as well as Tuvok seems comfortable enough accepting her emotions. emotions and accepting her humanness when Janeway's like, I just talked to your family before we left, and they seemed worried about you. And he goes, Vulcans are incapable of worry. And she's like, okay, they missed you. And then he concedes, and he's mm-hmm. like, I miss them as well, which is wonderful i just think that he's comfortable enough to admit that especially in front of other humans they have to maintain this very vulcan attitude but he's comfortable enough to be able to admit that to janeway because he knows that she's not going to turn it against him or make fun of him she accepts him for who he is and therefore he accepts her for who she is yes i love that that was a great scene between them and i think it said all you need to about the relationship absolutely I really want to compliment Tim Russ Mm. as uh, the actor who plays Tuvok because there's a special Vulcan charm that you need to have, in my opinion, to be a successful Vulcan. Yeah. Leonard Nimoy has it. Mm -hmm. And if you love Spock, you know exactly what I'm talking about. That line that he's able to ride where he's serious, but he's got a little glint of a smile. Yes. When he needs to. And mm-hmm. Tim Russ as Tuvok exactly has that same energy around him where he can pull off seriousness and charm at the same time. Yes. And there are some Vulcans we see, the ones that drive me crazy are in the original series movies in Undiscovered mm, Country. God. There's the traitor Vulcan, Kim Cattrall. No offense to Kim Cattrall, but I think she did not grab the Vulcan attitude that you really need to have. Yeah, Even Savick is oh, just Sav- not Savick. my favorite. Because she doesn't have that Vulcan charm. Like, to pull. She has the Vulcan charm. She pulls it off. I just want to compliment him because I think it can be tricky to play a character like Tuvok. And you can tell he's seen a lot of original series. Absolutely. I have have no evidence to back that up. But I just feel (laughs) like he's a great actor and... I really resonate with him immediately. And it's great to see a Vulcan. I miss yes. seeing a Vulcan in a series so far. We haven't had a, a Vulcan regular since no. the original series. I was thinking that this is kind of like the original series and Next Generation had a baby and it's Yes, Voyager. their love child. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because Absolutely. we have the themes of Next Generation and they're going to be encountering all these aliens while they're trying to get home. But we have the Kirk and Spock dynamic that mm-hmm. makes it really, really work in Voyager. Yes. Another thing I want to compliment Tim Russ on is his interaction with Ethan Phillips with Neelix. Um, He portrays the perfect amount of irritated, but I have to do this job. So let's just get through it, hand Neelix's towel and get him on this bridge so he can leave me alone. (laughs) It was fantastic. And because they continue that dynamic throughout the show, it's not unsimilar to Odo and Quark, but um, there's less animosity it's more just irritation coming from Tuvok and pure love coming from Neelix, which is hilarious because like it's so unreciprocated. I do think we have to talk for a tiny bit about how 
interesting it is that Neelix and Kes are a couple because we know that the Okampa's lifespan is only nine years. Yeah. I think that Star Trek and the writers are trying to play with all kinds of love being accepted. But to me, it's a little pedophile-y for Neelix to mm. have a relationship with someone who we consider to not be the age of consent. And so maybe I just need to be more woke and say, well, she's emotionally mature. I think it's I completely know. different rules because she's the human equivalent of what, like 20? But he's also the human equivalent of like 40. <laughs> Kes is two in this oh. pilot. Oh, sweet lord. Um, I just feel like if you attach too much human rules onto species from the Delta Quadrant, then you're going to get yourself in trouble. I just want to bring it up yeah. as something to talk about because, eh, I just felt a little weird. Yeah, I mean, fair. I guess I need to do more research into the Okampa's age of consent. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> In the end, there's this rescue scene where Harry and Bolana are trapped. Yeah. I also kind of got X-Files themes when mm-hmm. it shows everybody in the tubes. Absolutely. Same. <laughs> Getting abducted, having the probe put in them. I was like, nice. Yes. And this is X-Files coming out at the same time. Yeah, yeah same era. <laughs> um, but so there's this rescue scene at the end where perfectly placed, we have a Starfleet officer and a Maquis officer mm-hmm. in the same area. Now we all got to work together to save them. They become friends and they bond together briefly just so they can overcome this dilemma together right i I also had a big problem because at the end of the show we see the the last five minutes where they force a resolution to the episode and then we see everybody balana chakotay everybody has a starfleet uniform on and because the Maki ship blew up, they mm-hmm. automatically know they're all going to be living on Voyager together. But where's that conversation that said, Janeway's the captain, not Chakotay, and all these Maki people are totally fine putting on Starfleet uniforms? Well, I don't think they're totally fine with it. I think that it's begrudging based on the circumstance. I think what changed their mind was Chakotay and what sort of brought them into line because Bolana's like, what gives her the right to decide that you get to blow up this array when it's our only chance to go home? And Chakotay just says she's the captain. And that pretty much shuts everyone down. So I think I'm going back to what we talked about with Chakotay commanding so much respect that his crew are sort of ride or die for him which then of course we see later on especially in this first season that people want to uprise and like make Chakotay be their leader instead but I think he's trying to quell it because he knows I want my crew to live and this is how it's going to work but she seems fair she seems like she can compromise and she did make me first officer. <laughs> so honestly, I think that it comes out of a place of respect for Janeway. I think he values her dedication to helping people, even if he doesn't agree with her methods and agree with Starfleet. Mm. I don't love the fact that they all had to wear Starfleet uniforms. I think that that should be optional. <laughs> like, I can't imagine Bolana being like, sure, I'll throw this on. I think that she probably fought tooth and nail. And then Chakotay See, was like, just bear with me, please. We're trying our best. So I agree with you, but only because you explained it to me. And I'm having a hard time understanding these characters because we hardly got any information about them. Yeah. I think it's an unequal distribution of information that we got because totally. we know... <laughs> everything about tom's life everything Mm -hmm. 
I think it's a good resolution for Tom's character that at the end of the episode, he does make it into a spot as lieutenant, gives a spot on the bridge. Because he proved himself to Janeway and Janeway appreciates action-oriented people. Which is great. And Mm -hmm. it says a lot about Janeway. But I think it should not be the focus of this episode. And to me, it was a mistake that so much time was put on Tom and his story. But I'd rather know about Tuvok being a spy. Absolutely. Uh, I would watch a whole episode about that. Yeah. And so I think it just goes back to my overall frustration with the I thought actually the pacing was good yeah but I just thought the choice to focus so much on the story over the building of the characters was a mistake and just makes me feel uneasy about continuing the show and its longevity if I don't care that much about these characters this is exactly what I'm saying yeah it's really tough for me and I think it's the reason I struggled so much getting into Voyager and I think that these actors are trying their best but I just wish the writing were a little bit better and not that it's terrible i think that there's a lot of great elements of this pilot that set up the show and there's a lot of necessaries that pilots must go through to set up shows my personal theory i have no evidence to back this up but just knowing that they created the show during the run of ds9 i think there's really no stakes to Mm. having a good exciting voyager pilot because if it fails and it's not a good pilot there's still Star Trek on TV and people are going to tune in to watch Voyager, honestly, whether it's good or not, because it's <laughs> Star Trek that's on TV and they're going to yeah. watch it. So I think with Deep Space Nine, they had to prove themselves more because it was taking place on a station yeah, and it was a much more war-heavy, single-character-driven mm-hmm. storyline. There's yeah. a lot more to prove for a plot like Deep Space Nine because it's so new. But something like Voyager is something that's already been done. This is basically next generation in the Delta Quadrant. It's but very with safe. a female captain, which is the only like quote unquote risk they were willing to take, which yeah. sounds bizarre because a female captain shouldn't be a risk, but yeah. that's we, how the world it is, works. It is what it is. <laughs> and so that's all I can think is that they didn't care too much about how great the writing was in this episode because it's kind of a slam dunk they already know that next generation did well and they know that if they have some enjoyable characters people are going to watch it yeah and many people i've spoken to voyager is their favorite show and so they definitely turned it around they definitely made it into something that was its own that could stand on its own that you could watch without any other background that's actually pretty impressive for a show that's already gone on three series and eight movies at this point i think yes so that is extremely impressive and i don't want to bash it but we're also just talking about the pilot and this pilot is does not stand up as well as the rest of the show does oh yes i'm very excited to move on to different series later mm-hmm. in the podcast um you know that we're about halfway through now our first podcast series mm-hmm. and it is making me excited to talk about voyager in different contexts absolutely rihanna you're totally right this pilot is so different from some of the later seasons of voyager where i would die for this cast absolutely and so i'm so surprised watching this pilot that i have kind of the opposite reaction Mm -hmm. where the only thing that's making me watch the next one is janeway and i am curious about them getting home and so i think this is another idea like we talked about in the next generation where on paper this is an interesting plot yeah but an execution eh so true well said yeah Yeah. i agree (laughs) i like no like i mean i agree with your eh you you like my eh. (laughs) yeah 
the resolution of the caretaker and how he passes away at the end is convenient. Yep. And, and that's I it. think just proves my <laughs> point that now they can't get home because the caretaker passes away and he's a jellyfish. Yeah, exactly. And so with all these talks about taking risks and how this show was kind of a slam dunk, I think it's going to be so fascinating to watch the Enterprise pilot this week. Broken um, bow, here we come. Talk about taking risks. This show, Enterprise, is the earliest thing we have in the Star Trek canon at this point. And so I'm very excited to take a look at that pilot and to continue our discussion in this pilot series. And it has been an absolute pleasure talking about Star Trek Voyager with you, and I cannot wait to get in more depth about this crew later on. Yes, I'm very excited. I want to thank you, Rihanna, for joining me. There's (laughs) coffee in that nebula. Thank you for listening to the Duras Sisters podcast. Please join us next week for the Star Trek Enterprise pilot, Broken Bow. Please follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook under the name The Duras Sisters Podcast. If you like what you've heard today, please give us five stars and leave us a good review. Our intro, Klingon Battle, was written by Jerry Goldsmith. Our outro, Wars Revenge, was written by Arturo Voltaire. If you have any questions, please email us at thedurasisterspodcast at gmail.com. What do you call two science officers having an argument? Science friction.